If you have your Bible, open them with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2. Book of Hebrews, chapter number 2. I was thinking about that song, Behold um, Our God, Nothing Can Compare, uh, and how that must sound foreign to this world, but thank, thank God for the eyes to see him uh, high and lifted up. And, and uh, even as the Hebrew writer has described for us, uh, magnificent in all of his being, uh, there is none like him, unique. And um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to begin reading in verse number one of chapter number two, verse one of chapter number two. The writer reminds us, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his Will. Well, there's many ways that we find uh, ourselves motivated in the Word of God. We recall Paul's word to the Jews it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Uh, and surely, uh, many times over and over, we hear of the joys and the goodness of God towards us and how that speaks to our heart and encourages us and, and even motivates us. And just the uh, the thought of what God has in store for us and how hope really stirs up our longings. And yet there's other ways the Bible speaks to us and motivates us as what we have read last week. Sometimes in our laziness and stubbornness, even in, to use a biblical term, our stiff-neckedness, uh, that was probably my own invention of that word, but... Uh, there's a, a little sharper warning of motivation. You know that in your own life growing up, if you had a mother who says, if you don't do this, then uh, this certain repercussion will follow and you will not like it. Um, and whatever that threat was, maybe it wasn't a threat in your life and you bore the repercussions of that, you know that certain actions or, or certain lack of actions bring about a certain consequence. Um, and so the word of God is clear many times with that. And the Hebrew writer writes that over and over in what we call warning passages. We see that in verse number two, uh, as he refers to or verse one and two of chapter number two, after speaking about the majesty of who Christ is and what he has come to do. He says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared to us by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He goes on to say, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, the answer is rhetorical. You don't need to answer it. It's, it's plain as day, black and white. It's just like the nose on your face. It's there and everyone sees it, right? There is no escape. That's what he's saying. If you neglect this salvation, uh, where else will you turn? And there is nowhere else to turn. It's a very sober warning in one way, isn't it? That if we've seen God work and justice be poured out on disobedience and we neglect the means that he has given to us, 
then we are we are bound to see that play out in our own lives. We will see the wages of our transgression. That's what he's saying here as you look at it. And so it is a sober warning. There's also other ways God motivates us, and and even for those of us who doubt from time to time or struggle with with what is true and what isn't true. I, uh, I think that we all struggle with that in one way in reality of our culture right now, don't we? You turn on one news station, they say one thing. You turn on another one, they say another one. What do we, what do we know? I mean, how can we trust any of this? And so we, we live not only in a world where you have diverse messages bombarding us day and night, but we, we have grown to be more and more skeptical about everything and anything, right? Amen? Unless you're skeptical about that statement, which you may very well be, I don't know. But nevertheless, that has become more and more part of our culture. And yet what he does here, what the writer does is he brings them back at the end of verse number three and verse number four to be reminded of another motivation. Not just the motivation of warning because it's needed. Sometimes we need that. Even those of you who walk with the Lord for a long time, you need to be reminded of those serious warnings in the Word of God. They're there to speak to us. There's also that, that reminder that the message that they heard is truthful, trustworthy, reliable. You can build your life upon it. That's what Jesus said, right? When he concluded his Sermon on the Mount, it is like a man who built his house upon a, a rock, a foundation. And you and I over and over brought back to the trustworthiness of the message given to us. And he says that here, as he mentions, it was declared, speaking about this great salvation, was declared at first by the Lord, verse number three, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. As we speak about the trustworthy message of salvation, I want us to see first the trustworthiness based upon its source, where it's from. And first, I think worth noting is back in verse number one, the source of the gospel or the message of salvation, when we would say all of the Bible is given to us by God. I know many of you know that, but it is good to remind ourselves of these things. Paul, writing to the Romans, says in the very first verse, as he is called uh, to be a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of the gospel of God. It's his message. It's his gospel. We see that again in John 3.16, that very famous and, and comforting verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What an amazing verse. A comforting and one of the more known verses in all of the Bible. But, but even as we look at that and look at the message, we see first and foremost the initiator. It is God who loved. And John says elsewhere, herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And it is God who gave. It is God who, who has given us this message, who has given us the gospel. It's his. Now, it has implications upon us. That's true. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But, but before we see that, we must consider that it is God who, as he says in Hebrews 1, who has revealed himself both in the prophets and in the Son. It's his message. Now, why is that important? I'm glad you asked. Because we're very creative beings. 
Uh, we like to improve and improvise and imagine new things and new ideas, don't we? Now, we like to tell stories and make laws that change from generation to generation. And we stop telling some stories, as we've seen lately. We stop telling some so we can pick up new stories, better stories, stories that fit our time and culture in the context of where we're at. Uh, we see that also being true of the gospel as well. People tampering with, manipulating. We see that, that when things are outdated or things are, well, like we don't like them, we tend to cancel them or carry on some other way. But as we come back to the word of God and we come back to the gospel of salvation, when it's preached, when it's given to us, we're reminded that it's given to us by God. It's first and foremost his story. Now, if it was our own story, we could make it any way we wanted. We could make it fiction or nonfiction or mix the things together and improvise and, and, and change it along the way. But, but it's not, first and foremost, our story. It's God's story. It's God's story. It's not our method, but it's God's solution. It's his message. There's no additions or amendments or adjustments to what God has given to us in the gospel. Let me say that again because it's important. There is no additions, amendments, or adjustments to what God has given to us in the gospel. I was, uh, uh, it, I was reminded of, um, I guess it was Friday. It was. I had taught chapel at Perth Christian Academy and had the high school kids, elementary school kids, and they're a pretty active group, very, very interactive. It was pretty fun. And, and I was really nervous, Stacey, and so... <laughs> Um, we were talking, and I was reading that in, in uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. That was my text. I was, I was preparing like I was coming for you. I had a text. I had it drawn out. I had notes and everything. And, and I got to reading Jew and Gentile, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. And I thought to myself as I read that and looked at my audience who was dressed up like their favorite character in a movie, I said, yeah, you probably use that phrasing a lot. You know, in your everyday language, you know, we're going over here to see both the Jews and Gentiles, you know, and, and we're going to play the Jews and Gentiles in basketball. It's we don't use that every day, I don't think. And yet it reminds us because it is God's message. It transcends. It steps outside of both just the Jewish culture, but but influences and impacts the Gentile culture. It is one gospel message for the world. One message for the world. Despite culture differences, despite language barriers, despite time and events when it took place, it is just that one message, one message. And we have that confidence. One, because it's recorded for us in the word of God. It's true. And because we're reminded that it is this gospel message, it is God's message that is still the power of God unto salvation, is still his means of saving people from their sin. And so when he says, how will you escape if you neglect to so great a salvation, it's that same message, declaration to us, because it's the same message of salvation now as it was 2,000 years ago. It's the same power God works by. And to reject it is to reject God's plan, his purpose, is reject his power. Well, secondly, not only do we see it in the reality and its source being from God, but we also see it as being first declared. Verse number three, look at that. 
He was first declared, or declared at first, by the Lord. He came to preach salvation to his people. And what you see in the first of Mark, chapter number 1, verses 35 through 39, and let me just read that for you. After rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you, and this is his response. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. As we'll see, Jesus was one who did many great works and many miracles. And in fact, his ministry was booming at this point. He had just healed Peter's mother-in-law and everyone's coming the next morning saying, where's he at? What's he going to do today? This is exciting. I've never seen anything like this. And yet Jesus at, the, at this kind of press and, and, and popularity comes back to the reality of what he's called to do and that is preach the gospel. He prays, and after seeking God and, and coming back from prayer, he comes back and says, let's go to other towns. I've got to preach there also. Now, he did do miracles there also, but he came to preach, repent for the kingdom of God as at hand, as at hand. Well, we see Jesus' words before Pilate somewhat strengthening that as we as we see this exchange, and he makes a statement of the reason why he was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world, and that is to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came preaching the gospel. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. John even tells us in the beginning in his prologue of the gospel account that he has come to declare the Father, to preach the Father. But the writer reminds them that it was first declared by the Lord. They, the, the readers evidently had not heard the Lord themselves. There may be in Italy or wherever the church is at. But they had heard the words of the Lord preserved to them, given to them by those who had originally heard. That's what he says in the second part of the latter part of verse number three. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Now here the writer is saying that us, implying that he was not one of the first original uh, disciples or, or apostles, so, uh, but he was one who heard from them. And he's pointing us to these ones who were with Jesus and followed him in his ministry. Now Jesus did call many people to follow him. In fact, when you read the gospel, as you read them, even as you read them out loud, if you do that, that call to come to me and follow me is a call that is pressed upon every one of us. To come after me, to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. But we also see in the Bible, there's certain emphasis on a certain group of people that was to follow him. Disciples, we call them throughout the gospels as we come later to understand them as apostles of Jesus Christ. Certain men chosen to be his mouthpiece. In many places you find a list of the twelve in Matthew 10, 1 through 4, one of those places and many others that you find Jesus calling men for this particular purpose to follow him. John tells us as he's speaking to these men, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit. He gives us an insight what this fruit looks like later on in 
verse 26 and 27 of chapter 15 when he says, the spirit will come and bear witness and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. As he's saying, he's saying that God had chosen these men out of all the people that had thronged him and come to him. He'd chosen these men out of the world to be the specific witnesses of him, of his message and what he taught and what he preached and what he would do in dying and being raised from the dead. It was these men, as Paul says later on, that would be, along with the prophets, part of the foundation in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Peter, in his witness, uh, Peter, in his first sermon, says, we witnessed these things, the resurrection of the dead. And the Hebrew writers, as they were, or the Hebrew listeners, as they were, were reading this letter, was reminded back to where they had heard this from. Not a second cousin, far, twice, three times removed from somebody else, and, and you heard from somebody else. That's how news travels, I guess, they tell me. So-and-so said that so-and-so. No, this was a specific calling. These men were called for the, for the purpose of bringing this good news to them bringing this good news to him. The gospel was carried along by those who heard Jesus, who had walked with him. They ate with him. John says they touched him, the word of life. They witnessed him. Now, someone might ask this morning, how do we know they didn't mess it up or get it wrong? You ever thought there's 2,000 years pretty much overlap between when they wrote and they preached they shared the gospel and the day of Pentecost and where we are now. And there's a lot of countries involved in that, a lot of continents, a lot of translations, a lot of things going on. Do we have confidence in the word of God? Is it still a trustworthy message? Well, the Enlightenment and, and during the time of the Enlightenment with rationalization, everything was a machine. Everything had, had to be a mathematical problem. We could fix it that way with our own ingenuity and just thinking through the problem. And, and, and part of that supernatural realm in people's minds tended to die off. And so they began reading the New Testament, putting a big black marker over anything that seemed supernatural. And so... In essence, their search for Jesus led them up shorthanded. They, they couldn't find him anywhere because they just erased all of the, all the places where he is to be found that is in the word of God. But it wasn't just the thinkers of the day and the scholars and the people like that who were, who were trying to deal with the untruthfulness, at least in their own mind, of the word of God. Liberal theology in our day does the same thing. Well, they may boast of spiritualism and uh, and. And Christianity to degrees, and, and they boast of the certain passages in the Bible, but yet the way they preach the gospel, the way they live this life and attach adjectives to the gospel, they confess that the word of God itself is untrustworthy. Whether it's a social gospel or, or a prosperity gospel or whatever it is, adding to that, they, they remind us that there is something more to be revealed or something more we need in this day and time. Yeah, that was good. You can, you can take some comfort out of it, but let's be honest, we have evolved, right? We have tablets now. Not the kind you chisel on like Moses, but real tablets, you know, that you can, electronic and all that stuff. 
And yet we come back to that question even in a conversation I had the other day, a remarkable conversation with a statement that was made. I never thought I'd hear it. And it's like, how do we know we got the Bible? How do you know it is what it is from a source that I never thought I would hear from? Is it trustworthy? There's a lot of ways we can look at this. I don't mean to get you lost, and I'll try not to to do that. And if I do, just raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. We can talk afterwards. Uh, there's a field of study that is called critical uh, textual criticism that seeks to answer such questions. And let me just give you a good resource for further study if you uh, want to read more on that. A Peculiar Glory by John Piper is an excellent book, very readable, very understandable, and it gives you, uh, it gives you really enough to, to kind of work through this in your mind. But thanks to the work of archaeology uh, throughout the last century, we have really come to a greater appreciation of what you have in your lap. Uh, they tell us that there is 5,801, I think the number now is 5,812, but, but who's, uh, who's splitting hairs over that, manuscripts of the Greek New Testament in existence today. 5,801 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament that has survived throughout this past 2,000 years. That's pretty remarkable. This is partial books and fragments on handwritten copies of the New Testament. Now, they refer to these as manuscripts because they had to write them by hand. It wasn't a printing press or a Xerox copier or a laser printer or any of those things. They did it by hand. I remember when I was in school and I got in trouble. It only happened once, probably I'm sure of it. And my teacher, who lovingly rebuked me, said, go home. Your, your assignment tonight for what you did wrong is I want you to copy all of the A words in the glossary of your index of your, your science book. That was miserable. I'm just giving you some of your parents some ideas for later on. You know, some ammunition, store it, do what you want to with it. Uh, it's a great way of punishment, purgatory, whatever. And yet... What we have here in the Word of God, and what we, history tells us, is that these, these people handwritten manuscripts, 5,801 of them, or 5,812 uh, manuscripts. One of the earliest fragments is of the Gospel of John, which is dated to be around 120 to 130 AD. That's roughly 40 years after the Gospel of John uh, was written. That's like the same generation that, that we can come back and look at and, and test the, um, the, the text to those original that was written. Irenaeus, just to give you an idea of this time, Irenaeus was a disciple of the famous martyr Polycarp, who was said to have been remembered, or who was said to have remembered their words, speaking of the apostles, and that he heard from them concerning the Lord and concerning his miracles, his teaching, and having received them from eyewitnesses of the word of life. So here Polycarp, this famous martyr who sat under the apostle John and was discipled by him, showing just the, the time of that day. Also during this time, two different collections are dated around 150 to 200 AD. One contains parts of all four Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the, and the book of Acts. Another, dated around this time, contained all of Paul's letters except the pastoral epistles. 
And so here at the very birth of the church, within a hundred years, you have just the witness of the word of God being copied and shared throughout the churches and throughout the region. Uh, Within the early part of the fourth century, the entire New Testament was found uh, in Mount Sinai at a monastery. At the same time, a codex Vaticus was found. I don't know who names these things, but Codex Vaticus was found and contained the entire New Testament except parts of Hebrew and the pastoral epistles in Revelation. What are you saying? I'm saying what you hold in your hand was found a long, long, long time ago. And it was the very thing that they were using. Well, of course, not in English. It was in Greek, but you know what I mean. This fails to mention 8,000 Latin translations as well as Syriac and Coptic translations of the Word of God. Is the Word of God trustworthy? One scholar says this, and, and I quote David Wallace, who is a leading expert in the field, said, New Testament scholars face an embarrassment of riches compared to the data of classical Greek and Latin scholars. Uh, have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remains number no more than 20 copies. And we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. Not only this, but the extant manuscripts of the average classical author are no more or no earlier than 500 years after the time he wrote. For the New Testament, we are waiting mere decades for surviving copies. Now, I may have lost you. I hope to pull you back in uh, in here, but just to kind of give you an example of what he's talking about. Aristotle, who lived 384 to 322 B.C., his writings, there's, I think, 49 copies of his work in Greek, found the earliest dating right, the earliest dated back to 1100 A.D. That is 14,000 years after he existed. That's the earliest copy of his writing that we can find. That's that's a long time. Uh, the uh, Caesar's Galactic Wars from 58 to 50 BC, somewhere in that time period, there are 10 copies found. The earliest date is 900 AD, almost a thousand years after the events taken place. We find the earliest copy in, in, in history. Homer's Iliad, dated 800, 400 years later, we, is the earliest dated material, and over and over you go. And you see all of these, these writings and all of these works that, has been, um, that we have looked at, we've read, we've seen, teachers maybe have made you read, and yet the earliest date is 500 to 1,000 to 1,400 years before uh, those events taken place where we find the material. And yet the Word of God, we have copies of it all the way to close to the same generation. The same generation, that's pretty cool. Compared to the over number, their overwhelming number of manuscripts as well as the writings of the early church fathers who quoted scripture, and while we do not have the original letter Paul wrote, right? I mean, we don't have the original piece of paper that he wrote on. We can have confidence that we have the words Paul penned in our laps. That's very important, isn't it? We... And have confidence that the Bible you got in your lap is, a, is the words Paul penned. Uh, and we have God's word to us. And, and it goes back to our understanding. We believe that the Bible is infallible. It is without error. But we also believe that God will preserve his word. We believe in the preservation of the, of the word of God. God used the spirit of God 
not only preserving the message and the words of Jesus through the work of the apostles, but preserving it all throughout church history. Over and over, we're brought back to the trustworthiness, the faithfulness of the scriptures. You can trust it, is what they said. It is what they give us back in the first century. As one scholar puts it, it is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all of these discoveries and all of this study is to strengthen the proof and the authenticity of scriptures and conviction that we have in our hands. And it's not an unfounded conviction, but this, this conviction, solid conviction that we have in our hands in substantial integrity, the veritable word of God. Amen. And you go to the bookstore and you buy that ESV or NS and whatever that one is and the NIV and all that stuff. You buy that and you have that confidence as you go home and you read it. It is God's word. It is God's message given to us. There is a simple principle in this for us also. That is namely that the gospel comes to us from the lives and lips of those who have come to know him. Amen. That's what you see here. He's telling the, the, the readers, the people at the church here, he's saying that you know the trustworthiness of this message. These men had been with him. They witnessed this stuff. They witnessed the gospel, and it is from them whom we've heard it from. And that is the same thing. True, At least that principle is true for us today. That we have heard this from our pastors and preachers, even as we gathered here this morning. We hear this from the lips of those who have come to know him. And it's from those lips and those lives that have been changed by him that we hear from person to person and sharing and testifying and preaching in all sorts of ways. It is that reality that we as the church, being obedient to the Great Commission, are carrying that message further along one generation to another throughout human history. It is also, not only is that true for us and should be an encouragement to us, it also reminds us that because it is God's message about the Son explained by the apostles, we are careful to proclaim it as is. Okay? Let me read that again. Because it is God's message about God's Son explained by the apostles, we are careful to proclaim it as it is. That's been our emphasis here as we stand up and open up the Bible and go text after text, sermon after sermon. It is a reminder that this is God's word and we want, we would be wise, but not only would we be wise, we would be right in letting God speak for himself. Letting the word of God speak clearly and forcefully. As one person said, we must stick with the stuff that God give us. Amen. It's still the power of God unto salvation. It is still trustworthy. It is still the source in which God changes lives. And it brings us back to that, that tying in to that warning, right? If this is God's word to us, if this is what he has preserved, what he has given to us, if this is his message, then what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Are we neglecting it? Are we neglecting it? Secondly, that was my first point. I'm going to hurry up with this one. <laughs> I've got three. But anyway, secondly, uh, secondly, I just want to remind you that when Paul came and preached, the, or when the apostles came or the disciples came and preached the gospel to them, God witnessed to it with power. Uh, as you see in verse number four, 
who bore witness by signs and wonders and various and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing them according to his will. What is he saying? That as they come, not only did the apostles share the message that the Lord had given and delivered to them, they come sharing in the power of the work of God. God testified and validated their ministry and their message through signs and wonders and miracles and, and through many amazing and awesome things. Now, there's several ways to look at that, and, and, and maybe we'll come back next Sunday and, and talk more about that. But I'm just going to say that that is the means and the power which God accompanies. It's the preaching of the word of God that's the spirit of God that blesses. As he says, faith come by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. We want God to bless our time to, together and, and, and bless our lives and change us and make a difference in our life. It's through interacting and, and encouraging one another, doing those normal things that God has given us. And it is, it is through walking through, living in, living in the word that God has given us. It's powerful, quick to change us, to work in our lives. But lastly, let me just conclude with this. Greg's clock is moving along up here very quickly. Let me conclude with this. Not only is it trustworthy because of the source, it's trustworthy because of its continuity. The disciples preached the very same message Jesus preached. And what was that? Well, it is the good news of God, God's good news about Jesus to us, that we who are guilty will be treated as innocent because Jesus died as guilty for those who believe. That is the gospel, isn't it? That's what Paul says in Corinthians. He that knew no sin, Jesus did some amazing things. You know that? I was talking to the children and, and as we were going through our lesson, and I was like, just tell me some things Jesus did and some remarkable things. And every one of them choose water to wine. You know, it's in there. I was like, wow. You know, I'm going to leave that alone. How do you explain that to elementary kids, you know? Uh, but all the miracles that he did, but one thing that is so significant, so contrasted between Jesus and anybody else, and that is he was sinless. Paul says that, doesn't he? He that knew no sin. He did miracles, he preached, he did all the things that he did, and he did all that without sinning. And yet you see Jesus dying on a cross. The very symbol of rebellion, the very symbol of, uh, of a criminal, of, of Roman justice against those who would defy its laws. And the greatest act of injustice in all of the world is found at Calvary. You know that? The only person who can truly say he did nothing to deserve death is there crucified guilty before all the world to see. So that you and I, so that you and I might be treated as innocent. You see, he took our place, we who were guilty, we who disobeyed God, we who blasphemed, we who lied and cheated and stole and coveted, we who committed adultery, if it's not in thought and actual deed, we who done all these things that we've done, and yet out of all of the actions of us, Christ and in his great love for us took our sins and was crucified guilty. That's what Paul says, he became sin so that we might be treated as if we had none. As if we had none. The gospel is God's good news about Jesus to us. That we who are guilty can be treated as innocent because 
Jesus died as guilty for all who believe. The gospel is a universal call to all mankind to come and repent, to come and know the love of God. But it's only, it's only, it's only effect, it's only effectiveness, power is given to those who believe. Those who come by faith and put their faith in Jesus Christ are only those who, who know the power and the love and the goodness of the gospel given to us. They know the true meaning of the good news. To neglect this kind of salvation, to ne- neglect this kind of, of message is to neglect God's love altogether. It's to neglect his provision for us, for our sin. It's, it's to neglect forgiveness and restoration. To neglect the message of salvation is to neglect the worth and beauty of the Son. It is to neglect life and joy and peace and purpose. It is to stand afar off and to reject heaven and neglect your own soul. It is the greatest act of self-hatred you could have this morning is to neglect the salvation that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. The greatest act of self-hatred. Because when life is extended to you, all who would come and believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you in the very hatred of your own soul reject it and you choose damnation. In one way, it makes no sense at all to neglect this great salvation because it gives to us all the joys and privileges and promises and all of the word of God. And yet over and over we see the tragedy. Over and over the extent of the gospel that if you would this morning put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ he would forgive you, cleanse you call you a son bring you into the family of God and yet over and over and maybe you've been one of those for years at the offer of it you just let it lay and just let it sit there to neglect salvation is to neglect your own soul Well, beloved, this morning we have a great trustworthy message. God has given to us in his word, preserving it throughout the centuries. The faithfulness in, in, uh, in the Holy Spirit in, in preserving this word has brought us to this place where we can stand up, boldly proclaim, rejoice, and lean on the promises he has given us. Amen? He is faithful. His word is trustworthy. His promises are true. In him is amen and amen. And this morning, if you don't know him, the, the, the offer of forgiveness is extended to you. Salvation. Nothing you can do to earn it. But if you would repent, humble yourself before this mighty God, he will in no wise reject you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning as we gather together. Thank you for your goodness to us. I don't know where everyone is here this morning. But I do know the joy and the reminders often you give us in life of your truthfulness, your trustworthiness. Lord, thank you for even throughout this study this week and and preparing this of that trustworthy word that you've given us. Not just because it is, is a trustworthy word, but what it says to us we can rest in. I pray that each of us would rest Lord, I pray for those here this morning who have rejected it. Oh, it is a truthful word, Lord. I pray that they would, they would come, whatever doubts and struggles, that you would make that clear and, and settle that in their hearts and lives even this morning and that they would put their faith and trust in you. Lord, thank you for 
Thank you for speaking to us continually over and over through your word. Powerful, living word that you have given us in Jesus' name. Amen.